<coughs> Good evening, Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Zalbis. I probably didn't realize what I was getting myself into when I said yes to uh, Rabbi Judah Diamond several months ago. One of those things you put out of your mind, and when I was reminded, oh no. But let me just tell you the first thing that comes to my mind on this topic is little Khani comes to her mommy and says, Mommy, where do I come from? So mommy turns red, mommy turns white and says, Okay, this is it. I know what I'm supposed to do. She sits down with little Khani and tries to explain to Khani all about the birds and the bees, which we'll talk about. <laughs> and after this walking presentation, Khani says, Mommy, I don't understand. Surely down the block, she comes from Brooklyn. Where do I come from? <laughs> yeah, we can laugh about it. It's not a laughing topic. And I do want to begin by saying that just as none of us heard from our parents that we were to get a colonoscopy when we were turning 50, and those in the room who are not yet will keep that in mind and you'll also keep in mind the name of a good friend and congregant to whom will be Makdish tonight's learning Yaakov ben Sara we don't know for sure but very possibly a colonoscopy could have certainly helped the very critical state that this man is in today and oftentimes when you hear it that way it will encourage others to do it people didn't talk but there, there was a good reason. We didn't have it. We didn't know it. It wasn't available. Times are very different. If I were to ask, you don't have to raise your hand. But I'm quite certain that most persons in this room, their parents did not sit them down and teach them the facts of life. You learned it. Today, we cannot work any longer with that assumption that they will learn it. Of course they're going to learn it. They're going to learn it early, and they're going to learn it from the wrong source. And once they've learned it from the wrong source, it's so much more difficult to undo that which they have absorbed. And therefore, again, I don't have a television in my home. I can't recall the last time I've watched a TV program. But just be aware, because I suspect that there are TV in many homes. That, And this is from statistics of 2001. Now listen carefully. This is a sexual content on television, the Kaiser Family Foundation report. In 2001, they're saying that 75% of prime time shows contain sexual content and that's up from 67% two years earlier. 84% of sitcoms contain sexual content and that's up from 56% two years earlier. 10% of shows depict or strongly imply sexual intercourse and 16% of such scenes involve couples who just met. 95% of sitcoms do not make even a passing reference to the risks 
and responsibilities of sexual activity. The problem, I suspect, is obvious to everybody. You don't need a TV. There are billboards all over the place. Newspapers and magazines, you can't hide it. Or at least, not as much as you'd like to hide it. And therefore, tonight, I'd like to talk a little bit about our need to combat and to preempt. Because it's so important that the first impression be Altaras HaKodesh from you, the parent. Now, unlike Christian society, and we'll come back to this because this is very significant, who look down upon and consider the sexual act a big bidiyevet, we enhance and we embrace sexual intimacy with Kedusha, we have a combination of both the Gashmias and the Rohanias. I'd like to first spend a few moments presenting in a bit of a novel way our greater understanding of the problem and a unique way of looking at Taras HaMishpacha and then we'll get down to specifics. There is a very interesting dimension or quality that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has imbued into man. Shlomo HaMelech in Mishlei Perik Tes Pasuk Yitzayin tells us Mayim Genuvim Yimtoku Stolen waters are sweet and sweeter. He doesn't say this, this is only for some people. Built into each and every individual and very probably the more you think about it, this is what gives each and every one of us our our free will, ultimately our schar. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu provides each and every one of us with a dose of Mayim Genuvim Yimtoko. That which you can't have, that's what you want. That which you can't do, that's what you want to do. Now, this inclination, if it's controlled, wonderful. You get a reward. However, unfortunately, if it's not controlled, it can grow to terrifying proportions. I'm going to share with you an interesting Gemara which sheds light on this. The Gemara in Ksubos, Daf Yeralef teaches a very interesting halacha. Ger katan matbilan also adaz bezdin. What does that mean? It means that when a convert, when an adult comes, man or woman, and wishes to convert, so the bezdin, the representatives of the Jewish nation, are going to interrogate the potential convert. Are they sincere? Are they knowledgeable? Good. And based upon what they're going to find, they will or will not proceed with a Mysegerus. What do you do with a baby? How can you convert a baby? And the Talmud says that we do 
Ger Katan, a convert who is a minor. Madbilin also, we immerse, we convert Aldas Bezdin. So the answer is, the Bezdin at that point there has to assess and evaluate what kind of an environment are we putting this baby in? Is the baby going to be in an environment of Shmiras Mitzvos? In which case, wonderful. We have every right to assume that at the age of 12 for the young lady and 13 for the boy, he will naturally accept mitzvot as he has been living and observing Shabbos Kashrus Lachulu throughout his life. That's the case? Fine. Now, so the Gemara says, wait a second. What is the Gemara teaching me that I don't already know? After all, says the Gemara, Zachan liyadam shelo b'fanav. There's a halachic principle that says, and that's at work here, that we can do something meritorious for an individual even when they're not here to accept it. You can accept a gift for somebody who's not in this room if it's clear that it is going to be beneficial for that person. So now, the Gemara says, what's the Chiddush? What is the Gemara teaching me by telling us that we can convert a young child via the Bezdin. So the Gemara says as follows, I might have thought, I would have thought that a non-Jew wishes to stay in their state of freedom. They're not being bounded by morality. Kamash Malan says the Gemara, Hanimili, when does this apply that a non-Jew would be very happy to do just that, stay in his state of freedom? This is by a gadol, an adult, the Ta'am Tam de Isura, because he or she has already tasted that sweet, prohibited taste. And once they've tasted it already, it's very difficult to give it up. Avokaton, but a minor, Zuchusulo, the Talmud is teaching us that this is a schus, it is a merit for the minor, and we will convert the child. What is this Tom Tam de Isura? Are we talking about the cheeseburger? Are we talking about the lobster? What is it that specifically the non-Jew has tasted that is so difficult for him or her to give up? So Rashi, on the spot, this is Subos Yeralev quotes from the Gemara Gitin, Yud Gimel, and Rashi says, quote, Noach lo lios eved. He'd rather be a eved. He'd rather not have the status of a Yisrael. Be a mutar behefker zimashvachos, but give him the opportunity to be immoral. Let him continue his life of immorality. Miyos ben chorin than to have the status of being a Yisrael. Leos mutar bevas Yisrael, where he's going to be limited in his uh, moral conduct. It's not the lobster, it's not the ham. But there is a to'am tam isura, And this tam isura is an appetite, it's an insatiable hunger for anything 
as long as it is forbidden. Now this is an incredibly delicate but important point. Let's go back to what Shlomo Melech taught us. Mayim Gnuvim. If it's Asur, if I can't have it, I want it. And therefore, a person who possesses this Tamod Isura, he wants it specifically because it is forbidden to him. The Tamod Isura, which is a term which we're borrowing now from the Gemara, is the most influential force that shapes and colors the sexual behavior of the non-Torah world and accounts for so many of its problems. I'm going to recommend an excellent work entitled Marital Intimacy by Rabbi Avram Friedman and I quote from his book and he writes as follows the Tamdi Sura is, as I said, the most influential force that shapes and colors the sexual behavior of the non-Torah world. The Tamdi Sura comes in several tragic flavors, among them extramarital affairs, incest, bestiality, child molestation, and each flavor provides for the violation of some fundamental moral precept. Of course, each person has his or her own, own taste preference, but the common denominator is that the forbiddenness of each activity invests it to the moral taste buds of someone who possesses this Tama de Isura. And unfortunately today, who doesn't? It invests it with glamour, allure, fascination, excitement, sensuality, sophistication, all of the above, and now, ouch, the most neglected of all the flavors, the least glamorous of all, and if you wish, we'll call it the vanilla of the bunch. What is that? That's plain old permitted marital intimacy. Because after all, where is the forbidden flavor in it? to the rest of the world. The world invests intimacy with one's spouse with special little glamour, little allure, fascination, excitement, sensuality, or sophistication. Small wonder, its very permittedness divests it of all the appeal. And one of the ways to invest it with any excitement or allure is to invest it with or at least simulate within it some of the elements of the forbidden. An appetite for that which is forbidden can be developed in many realms and types of activities but nowhere is this fascination for the forbidden manifest more than the pursuit of sexuality. I'll give you one or two interesting examples. What do we find? The Afas Torah. Everybody knows in Parshas Kisei, the Torah says, the Jewish soldier goes to war. He's, wow, it's gone to his head. He's got his uh, gear with him. They've been successful in battle. He's been away from home. He comes across 
an attractive woman that the enemy has actually set there and to entrap him and now he's got her so very clearly you and I would have said very simply what do you think the Torah is going to say the answer is definitively no but the Torah knows how it should be no if the Torah would say no then what is the Torah doing the Torah is forbidding it and what is that going to do? That's only making the Talmud, the Isura, all the more difficult for the person. So what does the Torah say? The Isha. The first thing the Torah does is let out immediately some of the steam and excitement by saying, Okay, you want her? Take her. But wait a minute. And then there is this process. This process of 30 days where he's going to hopefully come to his senses. 30 days where he's going to remove the Torah says she's going to cut her nails, cut her hair, she's going to mourn. There's no question, there's an opportunity. But again, what removed the excitement? The fact that it's no longer forbidden. Rashi says it in Parshas Kiseitse. Says HaKadosh Baruch Hu Im Isor Enobi Isor. Unless Hashem would say yes by taking away the forbiddenness, he's going to marry her anyway. Second case, just to show this point. Again, Yom Kippur. How important was it for the Sawyer Laazazel to get to the Tsuk, to get outside to where the goat was thrown off the cliff how important very important and so a designated individual an ishiti is given this animal and he goes in the hot sun for a considerable distance and what does the Mishnayas teach us in Yuma that there were no less than ten different sukkot ten different booths along the way each one having food saying to him it's a hot day you're thirsty you're hungry you would like something to eat here now the Mishnah tells us the Gemara tells us no one ever ate but you want to know why? because that which was forbidden to him eating on Yom Kippur has now been removed from him there's no longer that difficult restriction of it being forbidden. Once again, this Tama, the Isura. So, the question is, now that there is this Tama, the Isura, and the fact that Christianity looks upon marriage and sex as a compromise as a bidiyeved that whether known to them or clearly unbeknownst to them they are one of the primary culprits that historically has injected that which to us is so holy it's given it this entire aura within the secular community at large of it being something which is dirty, something which is, because it is unfortunately couched in that Tamod Isura of it being prohibited. Note the contrast. And our kids have to hear this contrast. If we can use the term, holiest man, meaning the Kohen Gadol, 
who enters the Kodesh HaKadoshim just once a year. A fascinating job description, this point of trivia your kids have to know. The Kohen Gadol had to be married. And I believe, Rav Shechter will tell you, had to have children as well. But certainly had to be a married man. Part of the job description. Why? Not only because in order for him to literally pray for his family, which is an intrinsic part of the Avodas Hayom, but also because clearly, if he is the representative of the Jewish nation, by all means, unless one is married, they are not a complete individual. And therefore, the Kohen Gadol certainly had to be a married man. You've seen it coming. Now, take a look at the godless of Taras HaMishpacha. I don't know if you've ever looked at it that way, but the fact that each and every month there is a period of approximately 12 days, 5 plus 7, that a woman is forbidden to her husband, that is just the right dose in order to inject into the pure marriage relationship that Tam de Isura as well. But obviously that Tam de Isura we put in quotation marks because certainly it's being changed into a beautiful Tam de Hetera. But again, HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the Chachamim knew what they were doing when they created these kinds of laws and set up this kind of a system. Okay, all this having been said in terms of the background, now, what are we going to do today when there is this great onslaught of the wrong kind of perspective had a look upon this very, not just important part of life, but to us, very sanctified part of life. It's so important that we realize that the Jewish attitude towards sexuality is remarkably free of guilt or shame. In the Torah philosophy, sex should inspire about as much guilt or shame as the eating of matzah should, and that is none whatsoever. Both are mitzvahs of Hashem, both to be performed with the same joy, gratitude, loyalty to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Upon hearing the Torah's laws surrounding sexuality, don't mistake moderation for guilt, nor modesty for shame. The Torah requires moderation and modesty in one's sexual behavior, but never guilt or shame. And this is a very important foundation that we need to remind ourselves. And these are only some of the things that we have to start communicating to and with our children. Now, the first thing that I think we have to begin 
talking about this evening, as the topic is talking to our kids about the birds and the bees, is that we have an obligation to talk. And if I may, I'm going to use the expression of Chazal in a manner of a pun of Lo Dibra Torah Ela Keneged Yetzirah. The Torah speaks against the Yetzirah. The very talking about it will to our teenagers who don't have any other outlet, let them talk about it. And it's so important that you talk about it with them, that they see that this is something that you are very comfortable with, that they see that these feelings that they have with themselves are normal, natural, that you can say to them, look here, the fire that's burning within you, good! That's a gift from Hashem. Take it, preserve it, hold it for that very special opportunity called marriage. Don't, God forbid, be machalel it, which means to um, deprive it of its sanctity, of its beauty, by wasting it now when you'll have that opportunity to invest it with sanctity into the future. Let's be very honest. What I've said in the last 60 seconds is so basic, but it's not that the yeshiva curriculums are so busy, which they are, with everything else. Very often, to say it as explicitly, not in a kala class, and there aren't kala classes yet in our high schools, it's something which all too often is just not being communicated. And I'm not criticizing the schools in any which way. Interestingly, I asked some of the principals of the yeshivos around here, tell me, does the school teach the chapter of Yehuda and Tamar? I know when I was a kid, they skipped it. Whether I ran to it the very next day, or I realized a year or two later, whatever it was, it was skipped in my day. Is it being taught today? Now one of the principals told me no, and it's very important. It's taught in the fourth grade, Parshas Vayeshev, in most yeshiva tanas around us. So when I asked him why, he said, and let's do this together. Because in the fourth grade, boys and girls are approximately nine and a half, maybe ten years old. Now, it doesn't mean that at nine and a half, today, maybe in yesteryear, maybe we at nine and a half were rather innocent. But today, it's not the case. It's not the case by virtue of the fact of what they're watching and what they're seeing in videos, etc. They ride the school bus, the older kids on the bus, You'll forgive me, they're not always reviewing their Rashi on the bus. They get an education plus. So it's important that... Now, one of the uh, principals told me, look here, I have a 21-year-old, very capable girl from Lakewood, teaching 20 girls in the classroom. She's not yet married. She's not the one, and he's right. And even within the classroom, some girls are more socially uh, mature, some some are less. It's very difficult for the teacher. But I'm saying it's at that point where it behooves the parent that the parent has to sit down with the child and the parent has to have a talk. Now let me tell you something. How does the talk take place? I want to make sure that I don't miss this. 
So I'm skipping all my notes, I'll come back to some other very important points. I think the most important thing is that a child sees that a parent is willing and ready and able to have a dialogue with the child. More important than the content is the dialogue. Because the child should see that this is such a natural part of life that they can talk to their parents about, and you want them to talk to you about it. But very often they're not going to be the one to first bring it up. So unless you take the initiative, ouch, they're going to get it elsewhere. And you don't want them to get it elsewhere. You want them to hear it in such a beautiful way. So therefore, it's important that you should do it. I'll tell you something else. How should you do it? Do it through Apostle Chumash. Sit down with them and take out from the beginning of Bereshit, Perig Dalit, Adam Yoda Eschava Ishto. What does that mean? Sit down and explain it to them. Literally, it's okay if at 10 years old you can be explicit about body parts. It's let them hear it from you. And let them hear it from you that this is in an environment of Kedusha, that there is marriage, and this is Baruch Hashem, how procreation comes about, and this is a mitzvah, and this is something very special, and this is what God gives us the opportunity to be God-like. Again, but you've got to take the initiative. Now, I'm not saying every child, you wait until he's nine and a quarter. No, nine and a half. Be'erech, etc. But the initiative has to come from the parent. And it's important. Now let me tell you something. The initiative and dialogue has to go on between parents and children on this topic throughout. I suggest that given the nature of the onslaught that we have, as was mentioned in the introduction this evening, from every different aspect of the media. My goodness, how offended we should be that they can't sell a car on TV. They can't sell a beer on TV. Most everything is sold by having, and I apologize to the women that are here, but by having a woman as part of the commercial, and never a poor woman that she couldn't afford a whole dress. But, but, this is, but it's nothing to laugh at. This is the society in which we're living in. And even if you're going to control what your child is going to watch on TV, never, you're going to watch a football game. But look at the commercials and look at the cheerleaders that you're going to be exposed to. If this is going on day in, day out... And I've only touched such a small, innocent part of what they're exposed to. Then I think it's very important that rather than sit down with your 12-year-old, with your 14-year-old, with your 16-year-old, and say to them, look here, I'm your dad, I'm your mom, I'm telling no, 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 no. My suggestion is, involve them. Do you realize it's a problem? Do you realize this is not our hashkafa? And I'll tell you something very interesting. Okay? When does a young man become a gadol in accordance with Jewish law? When does a young lady become a gadola in accordance with Jewish law? 
Is it not more than coincidental that it does so at the age of puberty? That just at the time when their body is going through such, such significant changes, it is just at that time that they are called a bardas. And what does it mean, bardas? That they are given the intelligence, the wherewithal, to choose correctly. It means das, right? If a person doesn't have das, nu havdolaminayin. The whole concept is atochone liodam das every motzoi shabbos, and then we say atochon antano. What do we say in havdola? Hamavdil ben kodesh lachol ben or lachoshech ben yisrael amim. This is what the kids have to hear. There's such a havdola. There's such a difference. It's not that. We're somewhat similar. There's such a difference between our way and their way that I think a healthier way is involve them. Let it not be you the parent and them the victim and you are going to police them. No. How can we solve the problem together? Let them come up with some suggestions. If the suggestions are good, fine. If not, you'll do homework to do better. But I think an open dialogue between parents and children. Now again, it doesn't have to be the discussion around the Shabbos table when you have guests. And I leave that to you. But if there is an occasional Shabbos where there are no guests, use the Shabbos table. I know in my house that there's no such thing as an opportunity to have any discussion at a meal during the week. But a Shabbos table, okay. So, like I said, depending upon who your guests or the lack of guests, but use a long Friday night as an opportunity. There were no distractions of anything electronic in the background. The telephone is not ringing. Use this for a genuine heart-to-heart discussion to let the children realize, wow, how special we are. But they have to hear it because once again, your parents didn't have to necessarily share it with us because we were not subjected, or certainly myself, was not subjected to this kind of an onslaught of people just dressed very differently. And it wasn't that long ago. Now, I'm not going to go down a very difficult road. And that is the road of, well, maybe the best kind of a solution is a complete form not only of abstinence in terms of the kind of behavior we want our children to live by, but even in terms of complete separation. Now I'll give you what was told to me, purported to be the following discussion between the head of B'nai Akiva, I believe it was Rabbi Druckman, and the late Lubavitcher Rebbe. Who questioned Reb Drukman on the procedure or the policy of B'nai Akiva, where boys and girls in a controlled environment, much like certainly the NCSY that we've had in our Besakinesis over the years and B'nai Akiva today, that in a controlled environment, boys and girls will take walks together, but that there'll be this interaction. On the teenage level, boys and girls. So Rabbi Druckmann said to the Rebbe, Well, 
once again, given the society with which we're living in, and given that they have so much coming to them from the street, it's better that it should be in a kosher way. The Rebbe didn't agree. And of course, Drukman said, after all, when the time will come that they are Hassanim and Kalos, they'll be able to simply talk to one another with a great deal more ease than perhaps the other way. And the Rebbe said that perhaps the nervousness and awkwardness that comes with that kind of an upbringing is indeed part of the beauty of it. I'm not asking you to choose. I know that I'm talking to, and I don't like labels, but truly within the modern Orthodox community where that's not for the most part the manner in which we have chosen to raise our children. We owe it to them to have as supervised an environment as possible. And I cannot reiterate this enough how important it is to know where they're going with whom they're going and who's going to be there to supervise because if not I can only tell you when we put stumbling blocks before our kids we have no one to blame but ourselves and therefore it's so important that they have to realize that you're questioning the same way that you would make a call and another call if it was being catered and who's the caterer and who's the mashkiach this is much more significant this is much more significant who, what, when, where, why these are the constant questions and I have to say this Depending upon your lifestyle, this is the way your child is going to react to your questioning and to your supervising. I said before, the manner that we can diffuse some of this tamodisura with our kids is by talking about it. Now, there's talking and there's talking. One way of talking about it is, as I have been saying, initiate it. The first time it's going to be hard, the second time a little bit less hard, but we have to learn how to do it. And each person will find a different Lashon. And you're going to see how much your children are going to welcome this discussion. That's one form of speaking to our kids. But there is another form of speaking to our kids as well. Rasalvechik Zachron Levracha said, and it's so nice, on Pirkei Avos we find again and again regarding various Tanoim who taught different teachings in the Mishnah. So, Hu Haya Omer. So, what does that mean? It means he used to say, correct? But it also might very well mean he never said it. Never said it. He didn't have to say it. The who, Hey Vav Aleph, the persona, 
the nature of the person. This is what the person communicated by their actions. If we talk to our kids about Kedusha, and we don't live a life of Kedusha, then how meaningful is that discussion? The kids see right through it. If we talk to the kids about sneers, I'm not picking on the mommies, but if the mommy doesn't dress sonua, then how can we talk to the kids about sneers? And I, unbeknownst to me, what Rabbi Prezansi would speak about on Friday night. But if we will say Gachavis to a member of the opposite sex who we might not have seen for several months, for whatever the reason, and we're going to greet them and give them a kiss, and we do so innocently, and our kids see it. No, it's not innocent. And unfortunately, it's Oser Roshem. And we don't have to talk about Kedusha. If we live Kedusha in our homes, if our kids see how beautifully mommy and daddy compromise with one another, if our kids see how they don't raise their voice one to another, if the kids see how they treat one another with respect, this is who are your Omer. This is a means of communicating to your kids that they're going to see something very different than that which was they see in all of the videos and movies that what are they doing on the bus? I'm not even sure what it's called, but which kid doesn't have his own little movie player that he's watching to school, away from school, etc. It's not to be believed. Believe Guzma. Let me tell you something else. I probably had to practice several times to say the word sex before I came here tonight. Why? The Gemara teaches us that we should speak Belashem Nikiah. There's nothing dirty about the word. But in Kolset, watch this. Our Torah Kedosha has the following that in several places, right? Even this past week's Parsha, Yaakov Avinu says, Im Kimimadi, Binasan Li, Dek Lechem. Lechol ubeged lilbosh. What's lechem lechol? Oh, come on. Bread to eat? Take a peek in Rashi. That's not what it means. If he makes and provides for me a shidduch, the wife is lechem lechol. And again, by Yisro and his daughters, where's the man that help you? Kiran lo, call him v'yochal lechem. And that is says Rashi, perhaps he'll marry one of you. The Torah teaches us to speak the Lusho Nikia. Do you want to know why? Not because we're ashamed of it, but Adaraba the Adaraba. Because the Torah says that we're dealing with a matter which is so holy. It doesn't only reflect the outer part of the person. We're talking about connecting with somebody else, and we're talking about literally the pnimios, the very inner core of the individual. It's something which is nothing less than kadosh. And we're proud of the Sefer Torah. <laughs> there are two coverings. There's the paroches, there are closed doors, and on the Torah itself is the mantle. Again, that which is Kadosh 
is covered. And that's the reason why we dress Sanua as well. These are things that our children have to hear. And these are things that they have to be especially proud of. And I'll tell you, it can go either way. And we have it in this week's parasha. Amazing. What a delicious medrash in this week's parasha. In the chapter of Shem, who takes Dina. So the Pesach says, Vaidaber Chamor, the father of Shechem, Itom Lemor, and on this Pesach says Reish Lakish, Begimel Hashonos Shalchiba, Chibay HaKadosh Baruch Hu Es Yisrael. There are three expressions of affection that God has chosen to use in his description of his relationship with Klal Yisrael. Bidvika, Bechashika, and Chafitza. And he goes on to say, Bidvika, as you find in Devarim, Dalid Dalid, Vatim Advekim, Hashem Elokechem. Bechashika, the Pasuk Lome Rubchem Mikola Amim Chashak Hashem Bochem, and in Chafitza, based upon the Pasuk in Malachi, Perigimul, Vishru Eschem Kolagoyim, Kiyuatem Eres Chafet, and watch this. Where do the three expressions of affection come from? And I'm not going to look at you. I'm going to read it from the Medrash. So you'll see what Rish Lakish is teaching. The Anu Lemeidim Osa Mi Parsha Shel Rasha Hazer. We learn it out from the, you'll forgive me, in the context, foul mouth of the father of Shem. Bidvika, he uses the expression of Bidvika. Batidbak, Nafsho. Bechashika, Shem Beni, Choshka Nafsho. Bechafisa, Kichafes Beves Yaakov. What is Reshlokish teaching us? Reshlokish is teaching that there is that potential. It can go one way, or God forbid, it can go the other way. If we don't steer our children in the right direction, there's very little that the child can do and unfortunately not go astray. The responsibility is exceedingly great upon us. And tongue-in-cheek, I was greeted this evening by somebody who said, Judah, there's a mistake. Instead of saying, talking to our kids about the birds and the bees, maybe it should have been entitled, kids talking to their parents about the birds and the bees. Maybe, often time, and it might be too late, that they can tell us more than even what we can tell them. What I'm suggesting tonight is, we have to preempt. We have such a beautiful uh, product, something which gives us the opportunity to literally be God-like, to literally be creative. And finally, because I don't want to take away from Rav but I think it's so important that when we talk to our children as they approach their teenage years and as teenagers, and that term, Nagiya, 
comes up they need to hear that it's wrong not simply because the halacha says so we're not minimizing that but we're stressing something else that they can perhaps relate to in even a deeper way and that is don't squander the gift that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given you on something which is temporary and not meaningful and something which is going to unfortunately leave you empty as opposed to saving it and channeling it and reserving it for that which is holy and pure. Thank you and Hatzalafah.